Well, this morning, we are going to be getting into probably what is the one place in the Old Testament that makes me as giddy as a schoolboy. I love Daniel chapter 9. It is probably one of the most incredible prophecies that has ever been given in the Bible. It is the one prophecy that ties all the other prophecies together. And I brought this up at least two other times in Matthew chapter 24 when four of the disciples want a private prayer meeting with Jesus on the Garden of Gethsemane and they ask him about those strange comments that he made about the tearing down of the temple. He says there's going to come a day when all these things will be fulfilled. And he pins that day back to an understanding of one verse from the book of Daniel chapter 9. If we have time, hopefully we're going to get to that verse because this um, prophecy of the 70 weeks is, is, uh, is very deep. There's places in the Bible that a child can wade and put his toes in. And there's places in the Bible where an elephant can go take a deep swim. This is one of those places. So let's get into it this morning. And if you have any questions or, or comments or anything, just feel free to, to raise your hand, let me know, and we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. So Daniel chapter 9, if you remember, Daniel has been praying and praying and praying and praying about the fact that he knows that from Jeremiah's prophecy in the Old Testament that the 70 years of captivity have now come to an end. He doesn't know exactly when, but he knows that um, according to the law of Moses, that the predicament that they are in was foretold a thousand years even before this time. And so Daniel is obeying the Lord. The Lord said in the law of Moses that if there comes a time when you find yourself scattered into foreign lands because of your sins, then you need to humbly repent for yourself. You need to repent for the nation. You need to come before me. And with a contrite heart, the Lord promises. He says, I will hear and so he does that, and that's what we find Daniel doing for the whole first part of Daniel chapter 9. He's praying, and he's, he's weeping, he's repenting, he's interceding for himself and for the sins of his people, and he's appealing to God based upon not any good that he's done or any good that the, the nation's done, but he's appealing upon one thing, the foundation that God always keeps his covenant promises. And the covenant promises is that if we repent, he will hear and he will heal. And that's exactly what Daniel's doing. And what Daniel does not know is that because of his faithfulness, because of his persistence in prayer, the Lord is about to answer Daniel in a way that I'm honestly probably blew him away. Because he was so focused on a 70 years prophecy that he didn't realize that he was about to be visited by an angel, a very familiar angel that he's already seen at least once other time, one other time. And this angel is going to give him a 70 weeks prophecy. And it's going to basically tell the entire future of the nation of Israel. You say, what does that have to do with me as a Gentile living in 21st century America? It has everything to do with us. Because the covenant that you and I are a part of this morning is the new covenant that belongs to the nation of Israel. So our destiny and our future is wrapped up in their future. And we're going to find out what that future is right now. Daniel chapter 9. Let's look at verse 25. This is after the angel Gabriel comes and he, he um, starts talking to him and he says this. Verse 25, this is where we left off last week. No one understand this, talking to Daniel. By the way, who's speaking? Who's the angel? Gabriel. <clears throat> From the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. 
Now, let's unpack that for a little bit. The first thing I want you to notice is that these weeks of years are divided up into seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, for those of you who like to do math, what's the math on that? What's seven sevens? 49 years, right? Because we already talked about last week that we're dealing with weeks of years. These are what are called um, the uh, Shemitah cycles, okay? In ancient Israel, every time is based upon seven-year cycles, the Shemitah cycles. For those of you who have been studying um, in Sister Boyd's class over here on Wednesday nights, uh, looking at some of Jonathan Kahn's material, uh, he's a Messianic Jewish fellow. He talks quite a bit about these, these Shemitah cycles, seven-year Shemitah cycles. So there's going to be seven Shemitah cycles, seven sevens, and 62 Shemitah cycles, uh, which equals up to how many years? The first one was 49. The other one is what? 434 years. Okay. Now, the first question you have when you're reading this prophecy is, why does he split up the time? Why does he split the time up between the seven sevens and the 62 sevens? Remember, what is the scope of the prophecy? The scope of the prophecy just told you that from the issuing of a decree, whatever that is, we'll explore that here in just a moment, but from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until what? The anointed one. Now, in your Bibles, I'm curious, what does your translation say? The anointed one. Mine says the anointed one. What? Messiah. The Messiah, the prince. Okay? So, in other words, he's telling you the exact time from the beginning date to the end time of when the Messiah is going to come. Do you realize this? Like, he's literally giving you a date, a calculation that the Israelites should have been able to use to know exactly when the time the Messiah should have arrived. Now, here's the question. Why does he divide up the seven sevens and the 62 sevens? You want my, 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 my deeply studied 20 years of worth of studying the Bible answer? I have no idea. I have no idea, bro. If you come up with a reason for that, bless you. I don't know. Tell me. Now, listen, I will tell you this. I'll give you a conjecture, okay? I think, and a lot of other scholars who who, you know, write the commentaries and so forth. A lot of them think that the, the first division of time, the seven sevens, the 49 years, is how long it took to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That's possible, but we don't know, okay? Now, here's the good news. We live on the other side of history looking back, so it don't really matter to us, does it? We don't have to figure out the seven sevens and the 62 sevens because all we need to see is, does that time fit the time frame to lead up to the arrival of Jesus Christ, Right? So if you take the seven sevens and the 62 sevens and you put them together, total 49 years and 434 years, how many years do you get? You were good in math in high school, weren't you? You were very good. Just enough? That's right. Just enough. Okay. So listen to me, guys. I want you to get what this is saying. From the time of this decree, and again, we're going to explore that in just a moment. Oh, I'm sorry, Pam. Yes, ma'am. The total number of years? Okay, the, the total number of years, if you do both the 49 years and the, and the 62 four, it comes up to 483. Did I get it wrong? Hold on. 483 years. Yeah, because you're doing 49 years and 62 sevens. I'm getting it all messed up in my head now. Come on now. I was good in theology, not math. Okay. Okay, so get what this is saying. From the time of the decree, 
Again, whenever that is, if you count 483 years, you're going to arrive at the anointed one. Okay, are we all on the same page? Okay, now, there's seven years left. There's seven years left, and we're going to talk about those seven years here in just a minute. Now, let's talk about the trigger, the terminus ad quo, if you will, this decree to rebuild Jerusalem. It turns out, if you read your Bible, the, 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 what is the section of the Bible that talks about going back to Israel, going back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple? What, what are those books? Huh? Prophets? Well, there's specific books in the Old Testament that deal with the rebuilding of the temple, going back, rebuilding the walls of the temple. Nehemiah, thank you. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, right? But really, Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, here's what's interesting. If you go back to those two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to find out that there are four decrees that are mentioned in the Bible, four decrees mentioned by these Persian kings about going back to Israel. The first one is Cyrus. He issued a decree in 537 B.C., and this, was, uh, this is in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. But here's the thing. I don't think we can start with this decree because when you go back and you look at that, I'm not going to go through the, take the time to read through all these decrees, but if you go back and you take the time to read through that decree, it's not about restoring Jerusalem. It's about restoring the temple. Or, I'm sorry, it's uh, to rebuild the temple. Yes, it's about rebuilding the temple, not the city. What did the prophecy state right here? It says that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, right? And then it adds a little thing at the very end. It says not only will it be rebuilt, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Now, you remember when, later on when they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, they had to rebuild the walls with their weapons in their hands, right? Because it was a time of trouble. But it's not this first decree. It's not the first decree of Cyrus because that's about the temple. What about the second one? The second decree is Darius in 512 B.C., that's located in Ezra chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. But here's the problem. You go back and you read that decree, guess what? It's not about Jerusalem. It's about the temple again. So you keep reading your Bible. And then you come to another decree in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26. This is the decree of Artaxerxes in 458 B.C. And you think, well, maybe it's this one. So you go back to your Bible and you read that. Well, guess what? Again, the third time. It's about rebuilding the temple. So you can't start with that date. Turns out there's one other decree that's mentioned in the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, and also 17 through 18. And I'm not going to take the time to, take, to go back to the text, but if you want to go back and, and read that on your own, that's the one. Because when you look at it, Artaxerxes from that point makes a decree and tells them, you can now go back and rebuild the city. Okay? Now, here's what's amazing. We know from archaeology and history and from the records that have been kept outside the Bible when exactly he made that decree. He made it in 445 B.C. Now, if we're detectives and we're trying to be a little sleuthy with this, we already know how to count 483 years. So we're going to take 445 B.C. and we're going to count 483 and let's see what happens. Are y'all game with me? Y'all look about as excited as no coffee this morning? This is exciting stuff, guys. This is exciting stuff. Listen, guess what this does for us? Now you've got a date to start counting. 483 years to see if this brings us to the arrival of Christ. Well, guess what? It does. But here's what's going to shock you. 
What's going to shock you is it's going, to, it's going to be fulfilled in ways that are even more specific than you can possibly even imagine because it's also going to give you a hint, not the date, but it's going to give you a hint about the second coming of Christ as well. Now, let's talk about the terminus ad quem, the goal of prophecy, Mashiach, okay? It says, until the, the Mashiach Nagid in Hebrew, the, the Messiah, the Prince, and, and that's an important phrase that's used because in John, uh, not John, but in, in several places, King Saul in the Old Testament was the first time Nagid is used for one of the kings of Israel. He's called the prince of Israel. Does that make sense? Okay. So he's called the, Messi- the Messiah Nagid. And on several occasions in the New Testament, when they attempted to take Jesus as king, what did he do? Remember, he's the king of Israel. But throughout the first three and a half years of his ministry, there were people that tried to make him king. There were demons that would shriek and try to identify who he is. And every step of the way, what would Jesus do? Don't say nothing. He walked away. He'd say, my time isn't come yet, right? What about the time when they uh, tried to make him king? Remember that? We know at least in the the Gospels, there's at least two times that they took him and said, we're going to make you king. And he escaped. He had to get away from those people. Why? Because his time was not yet. Is there a time in the life of Jesus, think about the Gospels, where Jesus finally said, it's time to reveal who I am? Is there a time? Huh? Yes? When? When he cut off the ear? Okay. Tim? Huh? Road to Damascus? You're talking, about, you're talking about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts? Oh, no, the, not the uh, road to Emmaus. Road to Emmaus? Okay, he reveals himself to the apostles. Okay, he definitely reveals himself to those guys. But I'm talking about to the nation of Israel. Is there a time in the life of Jesus where he declared himself to be the king of Israel to the nation of Israel? You're getting a lot of answers here. Yeah, it is as you say. Are you the king of the Jews? Yeah, yeah. Okay, how about this one? How about this one? The triumphal entry. Do you remember this? The triumphal entry. All along the way, you have them, you have Jesus deny it. Don't, don't, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my time. And then by the time you get to Passover, remember what he tells his, his, his disciples? He's got this whole thing arranged, guys. It's almost like cloak and dagger stuff. Okay, guys, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into Jerusalem. You're going to see a guy who's got a donkey. You're going to tell him that he need, I need the donkey, and, and he's going to give it to you, and you're going to meet me at this designated place. He is specifically arranging that day to be the day that he rides in on a donkey. Now, what's the significance of riding in on a donkey? Does anybody know? That's how Jewish kings rode in, and when they were anointed, remember way back in the Old Testament, King David, when he was anointed king, he rode his donkey. Later on, when, uh, um, can't remember his son's name, that tried to take over the throne before Solomon got appointed, Bathsheba mixed up that whole situation. And what did they do? They went and grabbed Solomon before David died, and they stuck him on a mule. <laughs> and they declared him king, right? Okay, so here's what happened. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. There's a prophecy that says that when the king of Israel arrives, when the Messiah arrives, he will arrive riding a donkey. Look what it says. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. All four Gospels include that story right there. So here's the question I have. Why does he choose to do this on this day? And what day is it exactly that he's riding into Jerusalem on this donkey? Now, when you watch the triumphal entry, you notice the crowds are singing a song, don't they? Remember, Jesus is riding in on a donkey. They're waving the palm branches. And do you remember the song that they're singing? Pam, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. What they're doing is they're quoting Luke chapter 19, verse 38, which comes out of Psalm 118. And here's what a lot of people don't realize. That's a messianic song. For, thousand, or for a couple thousand years, ever since the Psalms were written, they believed that the day, when the day came, that the Messiah was going to ride into Jerusalem. We're going to sing that song. And what is the song that they're going to sing? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's why the Pharisees got upset. Remember that? The Pharisees went over to the disciples of Jesus and they said, you better tell them to be quiet right now because they knew what they were doing. They were inciting the people to recognize Jesus as the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And I love what... I love what, uh, what Jesus says back. He says, I'll tell you what, if these people didn't say this, the very rocks themselves would cry out. Amen? Whew. Watch this. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Somebody read verses 41 through 44. Luke 19, 41 through 44. Here, let me get you this real quick for the folks on Facebook. Tell me the verses again. Yeah, sure. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Ooh, did you hear that? Jesus holds the nation of Israel accountable for Daniel 9. Isn't that incredible? He says, you're going to be judged... Because what was the language again? Can you read it one more time? That very end of it. Because you did not recognize. Because you did not. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. To you did you. not recognize the time of God's coming. Okay. Now, so we know when the start of the prophecy is 445 BC. We have it confirmed in the Bible. We know exactly because we see the, 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 the Artaxerxes, the decree of Artaxerxes to go and restore and build Jerusalem. So we have a beginning date. 445 B.C. We also have confirmation in the New Testament that Jesus, on a very specific day, only one time in his ministry at the very end, right before he was crucified, chose a specific day to reveal himself to the nation of Israel and holds them accountable for not knowing it. Okay. Now, at this point, all we know is that this decree was made in the month of Nisan, not Nisan, like the car, you know, this is Nisan. But the month of Nisan, okay? We learn that uh, from the dates that are given in the book of Nehemiah. We don't know the exact day of the month, 
that the decree was issued. But as it turns out, we don't have to. And I'll show you a shortcut around the math here in just a minute. Um, but I've done a, a whole bunch of study on this. And when you take into account um, all throughout the Bible, whenever the Bible is using prophecy, it uses a prophetic calendar, 360-day calendar. Now, Israel is not the only ancient Near Eastern nation that used a lunar-based calendar. In fact, a lot of the ancient peoples used a lunar-based calendar. So when you're looking at this prophecy, we, we, we know to use a lunar-based calendar. Why is that? Because there are other places throughout the book of Daniel that talk about, for example, the 1260 days, the three and a half years. When you do that math, it comes out in 30-day months. So we know that he's using a lunar 30-day-based calendar here. So with that into account, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have to make a conversion. You take 483 lunar years, and you multiply that by 360. You get a total of 173,880 days. But then you got to take that and convert that back into solar years because that's the only way we're going to find out what date that lands on our calendar. Does that make sense? So we take 173,880 days, and then we uh, divide them by how many days a year? You know what the exact number is? I didn't know this until I looked it up. 365.242.19879. There's your calculation right there. Okay? So when you do that, you get 476 solar years and a little change. About 25 days to be exact. Okay? Which, by the way, tells you the exact day, the exact day that King Artaxerxes made that decree. Think about it. Because we know that it happened because of archaeology, that it happened in the month of Nisan. So it cannot happen before the first of Nisan, right? Are you with me? Can't happen before the first of Nisan. So you take the 25 days that we have extra at the end, and you tack that on at the very beginning, and you realize that that decree was made, uh, uh, it was made the 25th of Nisan, 444 B.C. Or 445, excuse me, 445 B.C. The 10th, or excuse me, the 25th of Nisan, Okay. Now, follow me. I know this is a little convoluted, but watch what happens right here. Because of the calendar, the way that it is, you realize that when you go from B.C. to A.D., there's no year, in, there's no year one, right? It goes from, right, so you have to add a year is what I'm trying to say, okay? So when you do that and compensate that by adding one year, here's the date you land on. Are you ready? The 10th of Nisan, 33 A.D. The 10th of Nisan. 33 A.D. On our calendars, that's March the 30th, 33 A.D. Can anybody tell me what happened in the year 33 A.D.? No, that's 70 A.D. 33 A.D. is the year that the majority of most scholars agree that that was the year of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Okay, in 33 A.D. Now, this gets a little bit more. Can anybody tell me what happens on the 14th of Nisan? Come on, I'm, I'm taking you. I told you this is deep. You got to go back to the Old Testament. You need to know your, your seven feast days here, guys. What is it? Okay. That's the day that the lambs are, are sacrificed. Okay. So on that day, on the 14th of Nisan in Israel, that's the day at Jerusalem, at the temple, that you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs that are being sacrificed. Now, if you're at the 14th of Nisan and you back it up to the 10th of Nisan, does anybody know what happens on the 10th of Nisan before Passover? I'll give you a whole chocolate bar if you get this one. 
Did you hear this? That's unleavened bread. They examined the lambs. On the 10th of Nisan, they are observing the lambs to see if they are perfect and without blemish and to see if they are worthy for sacrifice. I'm sorry, that makes me get into preaching mode. I told you, this is my most favorite passage in the Old Testament. So on the 10th of Nisan, as Jesus himself chooses that day to reveal himself as the Messiah in the prophetic, he is presenting himself to the nation of Israel and saying, am I worthy to be your Messiah or am I going to be your sacrifice? What'd they choose? What'd they choose? And what did Jesus say? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now judgment is going to come upon the nation of Israel. Augustine, you've got something, man. The, the balls are rolling. What's going on? Everything you were just talking about, you don't recognize the bulls that they have there now. It's a crazy sign of, you're talking about not recognizing the, that Jesus is coming to you now. Yeah. I don't have the mic. I'm sorry. Listen to me, Augustine. It, we're coming full circle. We're coming full circle. The majority of the church does not recognize the fact that we are entering into the time of his second coming. And I'm just going to be straight honest with you. And I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. Yes. They don't recognize the signs. They don't recognize the signs. Right. It's all there. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions before we go forward? Yes. Here, let me get the, I'll let you. Right. Yeah, I didn't quite follow all of the jumping back and forth between the B.C. and A.D. and lunar and solar, but I did want to comment one thing, though, that with the strictly lunar years, the feast would be behind. For example, uh, the Muslims and their calendar, Ramadan and their big holy days will be in a different be in a different season so on the jewish calendar they have to add months in periodically right. to keep the spring feast during the spring the passover and uh, first fruits must occur in the spring yeah and so uh, anyway that's one thing to keep in mind when we're talking of different calendars so sir robert anderson wrote a book called the coming king i think it's called the coming kingdom or coming king or something like that and that was the first time that i really got into like actually calculating but you do you have to calculate the fact that they kind of like we take into account leap years you have to take into account those things too i didn't take y'all through that because that's real boring <laughs> okay but anyway all right very good thank you for adding that Or before the crucifix, would this have been as far as this prophecy? The, finding the blemish. Before, you're talking about for your Passover lamb? Right. Yeah, so typically that was done on the 10th of Nisan. And then on the 14th of uh, you have a period of a few days there to observe the animal. Okay? okay. And the priest would observe the animal and see if it's without blemish and worthy of sacrifice. And then on the 14th of Nisan, which is the, the day of Passover, is when they would be sacrificed. Okay, maybe the timing is not perfect here, but uh, I find it fascinating that before Jesus is put on the cross, that uh, even though Jerusalem did not recognize him as blameless, uh, in Luke 23, 13 through 15, Pilate summoned the chief priests oh, and yeah. the rulers of the people mm. and said to them, 
you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make wow. against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. The then Gentiles proclaimed him pure, but his own people did not. Oh, my word. Will you preach that today? That's good stuff right there. That's good stuff right there. That'll preach, brother. Man. I'm sorry. That was Luke 23, 13 through 15. Okay. Any other thoughts? And we'll go ahead and move forward. Tim Escobedo. Hold on one second. Let me get that mic. Let me get that mic. I'm sorry. For our lovely people on Facebook who are watching. There you go. You know, it's funny that this thing talks about sevens. I was reading Revelations the other day, and it talks about the seven and seven, the seven churches and the seven angels. Man, um, I'll just be straight up honest. The Lord showed me. He said the seven are here. I don't know what, exactly what that meant. You may can give me some more insight. He showed me. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, he said the seven are here. Um, right here, I go to uh, Daniel 16, 10 and 16. It said, then... One who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak, and I said, One standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of my vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. Um, in the subtext, you know, the notes, it says, uh, most manuscripts of the Masoretic text, one manuscript of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Sepugnet, or I don't know how to say that, Septuagint. Yeah, Septuagint. Then something that looked like a hand. Um I've been shown that too, man. Uh, the, the time is, you know, it seems there's good. It's it's absolute time of urgency. That's why I'm doing it's this. It's absolute time of urgency. I yeah. mean, there's there's no there's no uh, backing down at this point. There's no going back. Thank you. That's what I'm talking about, guys. That's that's the whole reason why I'm going into this text right now is because we need to become familiar with these pictures and images. The pictures and images is what sets up the typology that is pointing us toward the fulfillment. And I do believe that it's going to come. I don't know necessarily that it's going to come in our lifetime. I personally believe it does. I, per- I personally believe it will happen in our lifetime. That's just me. Nissan. That's like March. It, because it floats around on our calendar, it kind of goes from March to April. So a lot of times when we're celebrating Easter, they're celebrating Passover. Okay? So that's kind of how that works. All right. I'm going to stop on this point right here. So Jesus... At this moment, remember when you read when you read Matthew 23 at the very end there, he says, because they did not recognize the time of his visitation, he says, your house is going to be left unto you desolate. Remember that? So in other words, they're going to go into judgment yet again. In other words, it's going to be just like Babylonian captivity again, but way worse because these, this time they've been in captivity, been dispersed among the nations for 2,000 years. And by the way, there's a whole reason for that, too, of that time period, of why God gave them that time period. You know why? Because in the book of Leviticus, it says that if you do not listen to me, I will yet punish you seven more times for your sins. And he does that several times. Well, guess what? They receive the full measure, which is why they've been out of the land for the last 2,000 years, which tells you, by the way, that 1948, when they became a nation, and is very significant. Very, very significant. Now, I'm going to close on this point right here. Jesus pronounces spiritual blindness on the Jews. 
And Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 11 that Israel is going to remain in that condition until something happens. Romans 11 verse 25 says this. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So I want to set this up for next week. There is a number, and I said this last week, there is a number that God has in mind. God used the rejection of the Messiah by the nation of Israel to be the launching pad for the gospel to go out to the world, for the Gentiles. Because Lane, like you said, they declared him unclean, but a Gentile declared him clean. And so now, for the last 2,000 years, that gospel that belongs to Israel has been bringing Gentiles in. But there's a day, and God knows that number. And when that number is done, God is going to yet again turn his attention back to Israel and fulfill the last week. So next week, we're going to talk about the final week, the final Shemitah that has been put on pause for the last 2,000 years because of spiritual blindness that was put upon them because Israel has to go through their punishment. But there is seven years left for Israel to wrap up this prophecy. And we're going to talk about that next week. Okay? God bless you. Sandy, one, one more thought before we close? Here, I'll let you have the final comment. Just some translations on that full, the full number, some translations, but some say fullness. The fullness, yeah. Not a number per se, but completion. Pleroma, I guess that's how you say it in the yeah. Greek. From repletion or completion, that is subjectively what fills as contents, supplement, copiousness, multitude. I've heard uh, one commentator say, when the Gentiles grow up and get it, what we're doing, when they grow up into the fullness, when they mature, mm -hmm. then will be the time. So I don't know That's that a it's a take. full number or that we grow up and start acting. You know, we are wow, to provoke point. the Jews to jealousy. That's right. We have dressed Messiah in this garb. They see our Messiah they as see paganism. Pagan. Yeah. They see it as paganism. They do not recognize Messiah because we are so far removed of how Jesus worshipped and the feasts and everything about, you know, and, and I would disrespected. Add I know that during the time I grew up, the first two-thirds of the Bible was dismissed, mm -hmm. null and void. How dare us, how dare us forgive us, Lord, when Jesus said not one jot, not one tittle. We'll pass away till all is fulfilled. So we got to grow up. We got to start reading the whole book. And yeah, thank that's you. right. And and, and Romans Brand. eleven says that very same thing that that we are supposed to live our lives in such a way that when the Jews look at that, they go, they're living Torah. <laughs> they're being they're living Torah, and they don't even have the Torah. How's that possible, right? And it's because of the it's supposed to be because of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach Hakadosh, that lives inside of us, right? Because what is the point of the Ruach Hakadosh? He is to write the Torah on our hearts. He's to write it on our hearts so that we live it out, right? And that will provoke Israel to jealousy, right? Okay, good. Any final thoughts? We're going to close. There's the bell. God bless you. See you in worship in just a moment. Thank you.